Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, November the 16th, 2022. I'm just back from the excellent Techonomy event in Sonoma, uh, which we talked and organized by my friend David Kirkpatrick when we talked about how innovation needs to save the world. And what was interesting about the conversation was implicitly or explicitly, there are two models for inspiring, triggering innovation, the democratic capitalist model of the West and the technocratic, autocratic, enlightened despotism model of China. Um, and uh, they often compete and sometimes interact. Uh, there are, of course, those of us who believe that maybe there's something in the Chinese model that we need to respect, although there are others who believe that China is profoundly dangerous, a threat, not just to civilization, but to mankind. One of the people there was Isaac Stonefish. He has a new book out called America Second, How American Elites Are Making China Stronger. I interviewed um, Isaac uh, at the event. You may see this interview or watch it or, or hear this interview before this current one. Uh, and we're pursuing this theme of the threat of China, the problems of China, maybe the promise of China, with my guest today, another China expert, Andrew Small. He has a new book out. It's called No Limits, although um, uh, in the UK, it's called The Rupture. I'm not quite sure why the title is different in the US and the US, uh, in the UK and the US, but they're both about the inside story of China's war with the West. And Andrew is joining us from Brussels today. He's based in Berlin, but he's a bit of a jet setter. He's going to DC tomorrow. Andrew, ha have you seen this fish book? I mean, one of the things that he said to me at the end of our conversation was he expects there to be war eventually between China and the United States. He didn't say it would necessarily be nuclear war, but I found it rather shocking rather bracing. Are you in his camp in terms of this imminent conflict between the US and China? Um, I haven't read Isaac's book yet, but um, I know his work and, and I know Isaac um, well. Uh, I'm in his camp in the sense that I think the risks of actual hot war between China and the United States have increased considerably in, in the last even couple of years, um, I think it's an incredibly dangerous period uh, in, in the years ahead. I think there's still plenty of ways to prevent that from, from happening, but we're, we're certainly in the zone in which that risk has to be taken extremely seriously now. Tell me about this book, um, or books, shall we say, although it's only really one book, No Limits or uh, The Rupture. Um, what are you saying that... Um, that should make us nervous about what you call the rupture between the United States or the West and China? What's happened? What was the promise and how has it gone wrong? Well, I mean, there is a sort of lament element to this. We had 
hopes for at least in a most minimal way a world in which we could roughly live with each other's respective systems um whether you had the more sort of uh, even at the time maybe delusional views of what forms of transformation this could bring about in in china in the end as its economic um growth translated into political change i think we'd actually got to a stage where that vision of things was understood not to be something that was likely to uh, obtain but i think we had a significant phase in which we had a version of kind of soft authoritarianism in china there were still trade-offs and forms of, of complementarity between uh, our systems that made a certain amount of of sense um and we could still find ways to reach deals and compromises on a number of important global issues and i think in the last few years that's moved in uh, quite a different direction on 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 multiple fronts um and certainly at the root of it is this shift from uh, soft authoritarianism to something that looks more totalitarian under xi jinping um i think there is the question of what technology catch up uh, translates into um when militarily um in in terms of the the overall balance between the united states and china what it means when that model is exported and what the more ideological turn in in china translates into as well i think we've been used to a version of some form of economic pragmatism we're coming out of a party congress in which we're we're pretty much looking at a kind of all fronts struggle now and we've really seen kind of a a shutting down of the forms of relationship with with, with between china and, and the west with the united states and china europe and china that, that that we had really not so long ago we have a kind of control element on on the chinese side a a, a vision of uh china's future and the world's future that just looks a lot darker um than than the one we had um i i think even um a, a few years ago so i think there are plenty of grounds to be uh worried about what that translates into whether it's the fracturing of the global system or or ultimately its implications for our capacity to sustain our economies our security and in 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 certain ways a, a particular version of how liberal democracy works Andrew how um how important is covid in all this the covid years china's role in covid as well as the strategic military situation in india between china and india how have these played a role in 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 the rupture uh, so i think you had a series of shocks in the west um that kind of woke people up to what the stakes were um and i think covid was one of those very important shocks that the book certainly uh, looks at um i think it had the effect of really pushing uh, forcing on people a, a very different understanding of of what dependence really meant what risky forms of dependence on on china meant um and although it was focused in in this instance on very particular medical supply chains um i i think this has since been understood in in much more expansive terms we understood what it actually meant for these things to be shut down and and for china to look at potentially weaponizing them in ways that would have um had uh profound consequences um for 
uh, the, uh, the 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 lives of, of of people across the world, and 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 at certain junctures, that was something that that, that China certainly uh, threatened, um, and something that if we were to look at some of the scenarios that would involve outright warfare, Taiwan um, again being the most obvious case, um, that's something that, that 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 China could could very readily do, and 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 where conflict dynamics and economic dynamics would would, would lead to some of these um, supply chain shocks uh, anyway. So I, I think. I think COVID had an effect in in that regard. Uh, it, it it also was the first global crisis. Um, if you go back through China's reactions after nine uh, eleven, global financial crisis, the eurozone crisis, the Russian annexation of Crimea, if you if you go through these and, and a number of others as well, China was basically kind of a system stabilizer at these moments. Um, it seemed to see its interests bound up in maintaining some level of global stability for the sake of its markets, its economic growth, its relations with, with the West, and it operated very carefully in these cases. In the case of COVID, what you had was an approach from China that was essentially to demonstrate that its system was uh, the successful and superior one and that the Western democracies were failing and, 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 and flailing and um, incapable of dealing with, with the problem. In, in some ways, the zero COVID policy that we have in China uh, is still a manifestation of, of, of that, this attempt to demonstrate the superiority of, of, of the Chinese system, uh, rather than what I think we would have had in, in many past circumstances, which would have been a relatively quiet, pragmatic, we're in crisis mode, we need to figure a way out of this. Um, we need to figure a way out of this kind of kind of model on, on, on things. Um, and I think it was also a bit of an exposure of how the rigidities of the Chinese system have uh, can translate into problems with 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 real global reach. I, I, I think. Yeah. Way... I mean, uh, Andrew, I, I, I'm a veteran of the, uh, the, the the previous Cold War, and I used to listen to people like you drone on and and I'm not saying you're a droner, but go on and on about the Soviet Union and what a threat they are and how well how dangerous they are. And look what happened to them; they were pathetic. I, I'm very nervous, maybe not so much about you, but certainly about people like Fish, who are essentially warmongers. Um, you're a, um, a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund. There seem to be a small army of China experts. Why should we trust people like you? Do you have agendas yourselves? Are you anti-Chinese? How much time have you spent in China, for example? How well do you know the country? So I first lived in China in the late 90s, um, teaching English in, in, in Guangzhou. Um, I went out to China in the first place just because I was so enthusiastic about culture, the country, the history. Um, I traveled then around the country a lot, most of South China, uh, West China, pretty much everywhere south of, of the Yangtze River. Um, and this was before I was even thinking about China really taking off as a as a global power. Um, I went back to live in Beijing um, for for a couple of years um, in the the mid two thousands um, during a time of really kind of tremendous enthusiasm and, and promise for what this relationship uh, these relationships might might look like. Um, all of my early work on this was 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 trying to figure. In fact, the first pamphlet I, I wrote. As a as a think tanker was called preventing the next Cold War um, because I was so concerned about the consequences um, if if some of these dynamics headed in the way that they they they, they could have, have headed even even then um, and and so I mean I, I certainly see myself there there are some people who came at this as hawks and there are some people who came at this as disillusioned doves um, who really had 
wanted and, and in lots of different ways worked for an outcome that looked very different from this. I take your point, but when you come to being a hawk or a dove, is your disappointment that the Chinese haven't become like us, that they haven't developed a democratic system? Is your disappointment about, you know, we've done lots of shows, lots of quite critical shows about, I'm not idealizing China, obviously, about the surveillance state with Lisa Lin and, and, and Josh Chen, for example. Where's your disappointment? This is a, a wealthy, powerful country, the second wealthy, well, certainly the second most powerful, arguably the second wealthiest country in the world. What's most disappointed you? So, I mean, for people's experience of this, um, it, it depends on where you started from on, on this. There are other people for, for whom simply the economic takeoff uh, alone um, is, is, is a benign thing. I mean, I, I think this is still, it's still clearly the case that the last few decades um, have seen tremendous growth in um, per capita income in China and in the wealth of the country and the lives have been, have been transformed to, to, to an incredible degree. Um, I think for those of us who are watching the country um, at, at this kind of juncture, say from the from the early 2000s on, the late 90s on, um, I think what we saw there was also um, a system that was changing in ways that were firstly still granting a degree of kind of self-expression and expansion of something that did actually feel like freedom. It certainly did to my, my students, the capacity to travel, live different lives than, than was possible before. Um, and intellectually, um, the, the, the kind of, I mean, it wasn't about having a, a China that just looked like the West. Um, it was about a version of China in which um, all the, 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 the talents, creativity, capabilities of, of the Chinese people were given full reign. That was going to be something that had tremendous benefits. This really, though... You know, and I, I mean with this with all respect, I mean, is it really any of your business? Um, the, from my understanding, I mean, it's obviously very hard to tell, but the majority of Chinese people are quite happy. The government's achieved enormous amount of economic development. Um, there's a strong degree, perhaps, of nationalism in China. Uh, who are you or who, who is Isaac Stonefish or the other hawks in Washington, D.C.? to make moral judgments about China, particularly given the dysfunctionality of the democracies in the West? So, I mean, you, you asked why I was disappointed. Um, uh, the, the, there's, there's, there's a disappointment, uh, certainly for, for the people that have watched this kind of closing off um, of, of a lot of these uh, freedoms. Um, I mean, lots of us have, have, have friends who were in Chinese business, intellectual life, um, uh, who've, who've seen these kind of uh, who've seen these people's paths be um, significantly constricted um, in the last period of time. Various of us have friends who've been um, uh, put in prison. Um, it's, it, it's had, for, for anyone who was close to this, some, some, some very kind of obvious material uh, consequences. You must, and I take your point, and, and, and I understand. I'm not trying to trivialise that. I understand there's a great deal of suffering for... Obviously, if you've been put in prison or persecuted, but there are many other people you must know who are perfectly happy with the system. Um, I mean, I, I think that has. I, I would not say that the what has developed under Xi Jinping is um, a framework that um, a, a particular class of people um, 
is is happy with in 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 all sorts of ways. I mean, I yes, you have a um, you've continued to sustain certain levels of of economic growth uh, through this period of time. Uh, yes, you it has stimulated further stimulated certain forms of of, of nationalism in the country. Um, I, I I still think there's a sense that in different ways. Um, there are important ways in which in, in which China is, is is on the wrong track um, at the moment. But but as you said before, that's not the thing that is necessarily uh, my business or or the hawks' business. Um, it's the implications for uh, much of the rest of the world that I think are our legitimate business. Um, is your biggest concern, Andrew, in terms of this rupture, these no limits, the impact on foreign policy? You've written some stuff about. Uh, China's relations with the Taliban, their behavior in, in, in Central Asia. I mean, they're certainly a regional power if, as well as a global power. Don't they have the right? I mean, America screwed up Afghanistan. Why shouldn't China have relations with the Taliban? I, I mean, I, I, I have relations with the Taliban. I've, I've followed this pretty neutrally. Uh, this, this isn't something that's... Um, uh, certainly in, in, in the work that I've done on the subject, something that, or, or in the book, something that's being particularly demonized. I, I think, in fact, the views on the Taliban between um, the US and, and, and China don't look, don't look vastly different. So what concerns early. you? Is it mostly Taiwan? I mean, you've also written about China's relations with Russia. Uh, haven't they acted as a break on Putin's insanity, his bellicosity? No, I mean they've been enablers for it. Um, I, I, I think the context in which back in in February you get that uh, no limits joint statement between the two sides, the point in which the Russians move most of their troops, uh, large portions of their troops away from Chinese and Mongolian borders, drawing them down to the lowest level since the 1920s, uh, the political support that's been given, the expectation of certain forms of economic backing that the Chinese will provide. Th this was an enabling backdrop uh, for, for for the war. Uh, the I, and I don't think there's been any limitation from from the Chinese side on on the bellicosity uh, so far. I mean, this 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 is still has been for for Xi Jinping personally um, and for uh, a certain strand of thinking on the Chinese side the 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 attempt to forge this kind of deeper partnership with with Russia uh, is certainly something that is for. Um, uh, if, if you're sitting um, uh, here in Europe, um, a significant concern in terms of uh, how it's enabled uh, Russia to, um, to, to, to wage the, the, the war in, in Ukraine. Um, again, not something that had been the case back when we were watching this um, play out in, 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 with the annexation of Crimea in 2014, where, where China was much more uh, carefully uh, neutral in, in this way. But, but yes, it is, it, it's particularly... There are a set of foreign policy concerns um, about this. There are the impacts on on a whole series of of economic sectors in in Europe um, as well. Uh, there is obviously, um, as we've seen in uh, Hong Kong, a tremendous rollback in freedoms. There is considerable threat to uh, Taiwan, which would have devastating global consequences um, if 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 it continued to head in the direction that that it's headed. Um, and none of this was was necessary. I mean, the 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 the, there was a version of uh, on 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 all of these different areas, um, not even so long ago, that did look like a, a different balance in terms of the global power that, that that China was turning into. How much of this, uh, Andrew, is in your view bound up in the zero sum nature of 
global economics. We've done a number of shows about whether or not the globalized system is indeed a zero sum. Fred Bergstein, who has a book out, uh, The United States versus China, still believes that the system requires both parties to come to the table for mutual prosperity. And there are others like Aaron Friedberg. And I'm sure you're familiar with his book and, 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 and Bergstein's book. Uh, Fried, Friedberg's book is a contest for supremacy who disagrees, who's, who's very much in your camp. Um, what would you make of the, I guess, the more dovish, at least economic position of people like Bergston? I mean, first of all, we're still obviously maintaining significant levels of, of global trade uh, with, with China. Lots of the restrictions that we've been talking about in, in the overall scheme of the economic relationship have, have, have still so far been um, uh, more on, on the margins, particularly in, in, in the most important um, sectors. So I, it, it's not as if we have actually had, in economic terms, some really profound rupture of the or decoupling of the sort that's being talked about um we're still talking about this being in uh this this being a a sort of unraveling of of the systems in 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 a few very important uh areas um often quite narrowly defined still i think in 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 national uh, security terms and we've also had a model of globalization that has been incredibly sinocentric um for for the last couple of decades i mean this there's, there's been a definition of, of globalization, which, which in practice has meant the concentration of um, significant uh, swathes of production facilities, uh, largely on the east and south coasts of, of, of China. Um, yeah, I, which, is, as... which for many, uh, certainly people in America, has resulted, I mean, it, there's no altruism here. It's resulted yeah. in cheaper goods. I mean, no one's doing this for charity. No, absolutely. Um, and, 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 but I, I think the the alternatives to this are not necessarily just deglobalization. Um, I think there's this discrete question of how um, you address, as 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 you've discussed and, and as you flagged on a number of your 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 other um, podcasts, um, some of the specific technology related pieces of of, of this. But um, there's other parts of it, kind of broader market questions, supply chains, and things like that, where diversification away from China does not necessarily mean, mean some great global economic fracturing. Uh, it may just drive... Right, yeah. Uh, Parag Khanna was on the show. I'm not sure if you're familiar with some of his yeah. work. Um, yeah. And we had another conversation last week about deglobalization, meaning regionalization. So what all this might mean is that America intensifies its economic relations with Brazil or Mexico and China with Thailand or India or Japan. I mean, we, there's the regionalization piece of this, um, which, I mean, if you're, again, if you're sitting here in Europe, that also means Africa, it means, um, uh, it, it means parts of Central and Eastern Europe that haven't received the level, this level of focus. We're seeing everything. Right. Tremendous is Africa the new people. Africa? Is 21st century Africa, Andrew, the 19th century Africa just being reinvented rather than Anglo-German or Franco-German rivalry? Now it's U.S.-German, U.S., Chinese rivalry in Africa? Well, I mean, the, one of the things that played out, I mean, I talk in the book about, I mean, when I would join all these shadow simulations for the WTO Do Doha round and things like that, um, 
you had this kind of effect. I mean, and you've seen it in Brazil, you've seen it in various African countries as well. Uh, you were not having a version of global trade that was leading to these economies being particularly diversified. Um, you were you were kind of back into natural resource exports to China. And what's being talked about at the moment is can we make a bigger push on infrastructure, moving certain production facilities to other locations, all of these sorts of questions, um, which would actually address, I think, some of... Uh, the economic balance in 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 a number of these countries, where again, lots of this had been so tilted to China, and we, we'd already seen that moving for uh, you know as as labor costs in China have have risen, um, as companies are kind of looking at some of the political unpredictability and decision making there, and saying that they need to be more diversified. Is but this, it's just a lot more work. Thing? Is this? A, I'm not entirely sure. Is that a euphemism? We did a, a show with Chris Miller. He has a really good new book out, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. And it happened to come out just when Joe Biden announced his chip policy, his chip legislation. Um, you, you use this word tilt. What does that mean? Um, sorry, tilting away from China, you mean? Yeah. Does that mean, I, I mean, that's a, is that a euphemism for boycotting trade or production with China? Yeah, I mean, are you in the camp, and I'm not sure where Miller is here, but are you in the Biden camp that suggests that the US and Europe should do everything they can to stop China accessing Western chips, computer chips? Uh, I mean, Chris, uh... Certainly, I, I, I think was um, uh, supportive of, of some of the most recent uh, moves the Biden administration um, uh, made in, in in October. I mean, I, I think there's, I mean, this this goes back, um, this this goes back a number of years. The the argument that essentially, um, uh, if the U.S. wants to maintain a certain level of military. Um, uh, a certain capability for deterrence. It needs um, a sufficient military lead that's dependent on um, a certain technological lead, um, and that most of this technology is now most of the most important technological advances are now taking place uh, in the private sector, uh, as opposed to significant stretches of of, of the Cold War, um, and that China has such ready access to these areas that um, it, it, it's leading in in some cases to destabilizing dynamics uh, as as I mean, which is one of the arguments specifically over over Taiwan, um, and that if the U.S. wants to kind of regain certain forms of of deterrence, then um, it's it's going to have to restrict some of these uh, forms of access to uh, U.S. intellectual property, U.S. design uh, and design tools that aren't just U.S. Well, design. Why tools. why why should that be a an effective form of deterrence? Won't it make the Chinese more paranoid, more defensive? Don't wars usually start? not because of strength, but because of weakness? China is not sure it can win a war in Taiwan. Um, and the question is, in the next decade, um, whether that confidence level shifts um, it, to a point where China's willing to take a risk with it. Um, and I think part of the argument is that some of these restrictions uh, over the, the, the years to come before China's really able to um, indigenize some of these capabilities um, will translate into a, a lead in U.S. military capabilities that will 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 give China pause. So, I mean that that's been the argument certainly on on the deterrence side from on 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 the U.S. Uh, part. Are we seeing the rupture 
uh, Andrew, also in terms of analysts, the equivalent of an Andrew Small or an Isaac Stonefish, are they in Beijing? Are they, is it a mirror? Are they equally pessimistic about the West, about doing business, about talking, about bilateralism? I mean, there's actually still, for, for a lot of us who have have had friends in um uh working in you know particularly in chinese foreign policy circles and things uh we've still been able to maintain contacts um uh remotely through through this period of time but i mean there's certainly been a, a kind of a, a squeeze in 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 the last stretch i i once went had a trip to beijing with um bob kagan and, and a couple of others back in in the early 2000s and actually the kind of relatively hawkish, slightly more neoconservative kind of minded people on both sides actually got along very well with with, with each other. I think there's there's some who actually would prefer to be able to uh, in the Chinese on the Chinese side as well to be able to kind of describe reality as it is um, and 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 understand and deal with and navigate the the rivalry and competitive dynamics um, as as they really are, uh, rather than pretending that that things are in a different place on this. Um, I I actually think there are still areas in which we can uh, cooperate. Um, I I think there are kind of risks that both sides need to need to head off. Um, I think it's much harder to deal with all of that if if there's kind of uh, a pretense that the relationship doesn't look like um, what, what it is, which is now, as Xi Jinping has characterized it, this essentially kind of struggle uh, between... Cold War, Andrew, and, can we use that term? I mean, it, 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 it's an obvious reference point for all the, for all the differences that exist. There are... The, the, Except there are that uh, China is not going to disintegrate like the Soviet Union. We had another of your... China colleagues, Thomas Orlick on the show, I'm sure you know his work, China, the bubble that never pops. The, the, the bubble, do you think it will ever pop, the Chinese bubble, the Chinese economy? I mean, we're currently projecting a significantly lower growth phase. Um, we haven't had that since essentially the couple of years after Tiananmen when they were kind of making up the mind about what direction they really wanted to to, to take. I mean, obviously, the Chinese economy is now on such a scale that even small growth increments um, add a huge amount to the global economy. I think we're past the phase in which we can we can talk about China, you know, being unable to reach its its status as, as a superpower. I think that trajectory is is, is still quite mm. clear. It, it but... seems to me that the historical analogy isn't with the Soviet Union, maybe with Germany before the First World War, certainly more accurate. What about the question of interpretation and this age-old misunderstanding between the West and China. We did a show uh, earlier this month with Henrietta Harrison, an Oxford University historian. She has a prize-winning new book out, The Perils of Interpreting This Endless Struggle Between the Chinese and the British or the Europeans to talk to one another. Is this part of that same syndrome? Is we simply don't share, for one reason or other, the same language? I mean, we can all speak English or Chinese, but our, our broader interpretation is just foreign to one another? Um, I think actually one of the things that's gone on in the last period of time is, I mean, yes, there are elements of, of, of these dynamics and these have mattered at, at, at certain junctures. Uh, at the moment, what people are spending quite a lot of time on is just trying to 
read and describe what uh, Xi Jinping and the Chinese leadership are are saying. That the helpful thing is now that rather than these coming out through kind of leaked documents, some secret speeches that he's giving, um, these are just spelled out very openly. Uh, China's become much the Chinese. Communist Party has become much better, at, at, um, as, as it were, at, at just laying out its intentions in, in, in some of these areas and then delivering uh, on them. But that's because they're a stronger power, because clearly yeah. they are a superpower, a global power, and they can do that. Isn't that the, just the nature of things? Uh, yes. And, and, and so I, I think this is when we're describing the intentions, I, I, I don't think it's warmongery or, or, or hawkish, particularly. I mean, we're, we're just looking at what the Chinese government says it's doing um, and what it is doing and what it says it intends to do um, and, and figuring out what that 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 would that would mean, I, which is also indicative of the fact that a lot of this is actually very reactive uh, at the moment. But it is reactive to developments that we are really seeing on, on the Chinese side, um, whether it's in Xinjiang or Hong Kong on the South China Sea or Taiwan or all of these sorts of uh, things that, that are of a different nature to what we were, were, were seeing before. And I mean, the point that I kind of stress in the book is it is a lot of the people who are closest to China uh, who have been working most closely with China over the last period of time, who have grown most alarmed. Um, yeah, I was I interested out- in, in that piece in the book. Um, in, in the Fish book, um, he really picks on, and I'm sure you're familiar with his argument, he, he picks on, uh, in particular, Henry Kissinger and Madeleine Albright. So he has both a conservative and a, and a liberal and their respective groups, the old Stonebridge group and then the Kissinger Associates, suggesting that that these people developed huge amount of business in consulting or working with the Chinese. Are you seeing the old China doves turn into China hawks? Um, I have seen um, that uh, particularly. uh, I mean, there are the, the the case I cite in the book is the um, BDI, the German Business Association's um, paper, um, which was the first one to lay out this framework about China being a systemic competitor, um, which um, then kind of others then dubbed China a systemic rival. But the concept that we're in a sort of systemic competition or struggle with with China was something coming out of the German Business Association, which had obviously done some of the the the, the most profitable and effective business with China for uh, the preceding uh, decades. Um, and the people, I mean, talking to the people who were, who, who who wrote this this paper, which had a huge uh, effect in in Europe. Uh, often the people who were most supportive of it were the people who were doing the most business, were the closest to China um, uh, through this process, and uh, but saw what they they saw. They didn't always want to put their names to it. They were actually on the business side extremely careful. They they they're, they're still doing business um, to this day in in, in the country. Uh, but they thought that Europe um, and Germany, in, in in this case, needed to re- respond to what this what they were seeing under Xi Jinping uh, very differently um and 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 I've seen that in in the think tank world and and some of the intellectual uh, world as well I I think there are uh, I think there are plenty of people who have spent large swathes of their careers trying to figure out how to have a benign and cooperative relationship with with China um uh who who 
are now coming out and saying that in this version of, of what we're seeing, um, uh, that's that's no longer possible um, in 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 the kind of in the form that we we, we had hoped. And and some of them um, are the ones who are pushing the debate kind of hardest and, and furthest um, in a direction that, that that says that we are entering into a phase as the as Xi Jinping describes that um, uh, that has so that has far more of a kind of struggle quality uh, to it now. It's ironic, uh, as you know, of course, uh, Donald Trump announced his presidency yesterday, or his attempt to become president again in 2024 yesterday. He doesn't seem to be impressing most Republicans, but Trump was first on on the China issue. Uh, He believed in America first. Uh, But of course, his China policy was very much bound up with either uh, often an overt racism of one kind or another. Again, a a very troubling feature of Western policy towards the Chinese and China. We did a show in October with Mei Nye. She has a book out, The China Question, The Gold Rushes in Global Politics, which deals with the perennial theme of racism against Chinese people in the West. Are you fearful, Andrew? I mean, obviously, you're not in any way a racist, but are you fearful that the message that you and your fellow analysts lay out in books like No Limits and The Rupture get, will get used by Trumpists, by racists, and could result conceivably in the persecution of Chinese Americans or Chinese people in Europe, and in reverse also the problem of Europeans and Americans in China itself. Um, I think it's, 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 it's an extremely important issue and one that everyone who is um, who, who's who's working in in this field is 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 very conscious about particularly and 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 I will include Isaac in this who 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 if if you've if you've seen the way he talks and, and writes about it um, as as well is is very careful about that. Yeah, to be fair to Isaac, he he did and, and it was interesting in the conversation he brought up race and I kind of poo pooed it, but by the end of the conversation I recognised he was actually right. So I think it's a fair point. I mean, there are, there are people coming at this from quite different angles. There, there are people who use uh, language and, and, and talk about this in, in, in ways that, that, that are inflammatory, that, that create these problems. Um, this, there, there have been there have been a number of racist incidents um, in, in the last period of time. Of course, it affects the climate when political dynamics move um, in, in this direction. And, and everyone who's involved in this um, has to tread quite carefully and, and precisely in, in, in what they're talking about. Um, it's it's one of the reasons I think, and, and it still doesn't do enough, um, but there is such care to, to reference uh, the PRC, the Chinese Communist Party, um, Xi Jinping, all, all of these things, rather than um, sort of lazily just calling this China, the Chinese and, and things like that. And, and, and it's, I, I think the people who um, again, it, more so the people who have been closely involved in this relationship and um, and 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 are kind of conscious of of, of these questions um, are, are, are quite um, are, are quite attuned to um, the risks um, and uh, of, of 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 what might be involved in in, in this and 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 certainly um, the once the overall climate moves in a particular uh, direction as it as as it has. 
um, uh, this, this, these are these are some of the real problems that, that come along with it. But um, you, you also have to describe what is going on with the Chinese Communist Party um, and 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 a number of the risks that um, are posed by that, and characterize the relationship accurately. You just have to be very careful with the the the, the language that's that, that's used on on this. Uh, Biden, of course, just met Xi. Um... The Washington Post headline was that the meeting shows that the U.S.-China relations will get worse, not better. That's a sort of liberal hawkish position. I guess the Wall Street Journal, more conservative newspaper, Murdoch paper, uh, talks about managing fierce competition. If DeSantis wins the Republican nomination, which at this point seems relatively likely, could you see Biden and DeSantis sort of competing on a, an anti-Chinese message in 2024? I think we now have, either with them or with um, generally uh, how politics is being conducted around uh, China in, in the US, there is a care not to get on the uh, on, on, on the wrong side of, of, of this issue. I think there's an understanding how public and political opinion has has moved on this but i mean there's also been a genuine shift in in assessments it was interesting when you saw the way biden talked about china in the the election campaign which was a kind of not quite as a, a little more dismissive of a threat certainly not something that seemed to be felt particularly viscerally about what sort of challenge that that china represented that shifted quite markedly after he took office. Um, and I asked people close to him why there was this kind of shift in the way he seemed to treat it. And, and some of it was he saw the intelligence. Some of it was Xi Jinping talking to him about um, uh, uh, some of these early exchanges um, about, you know, the failings of democracy and the, 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 the success of the Chinese system and essentially democracy was doomed and these sorts of things that, that had a certain effect. But I mean, the, the assessments across the board, I, I think, in, in U.S. politics are, um, yes, there's, you know, there's, there's kind of there's the further edges of this. Um, and, and we see that a bit in the Taiwan debate. There are directions that can be quite risky that this, this can be pushed in. But I think a fair, there is just a fair degree of consensus on the core elements on 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 China policy. So, yes, there are there are pieces where one can. You can mentioned Kagan. um Notable hawk, not involved in the Biden administration. Is there any anyone really driving U.S. policy when it comes to China? Are there particular hawks or doves, for that matter, within the Biden administration? Clearly, he fancies himself as a foreign policy president, and he has more experience in foreign policy than many other presidents, more than Obama did, uh, who wasn't a great, I don't think, foreign policy president. Um, who 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 should we be listening to? To, to 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 determine the way the wind is blowing within the administration, the Biden administration, when it comes to China. Uh, I mean, in this administration, you basically, I mean, what China policy is is as so often largely run out of the White House. Uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, um, has a a kind of heavy hand on on a lot of these things and it's his speeches that are kind of important marker points i, I think on a lot of this um and then kurt campbell um who is the the the, the indo-pacific coordinator um under him is is the kind of 
um, kind of then then leads um, the, the the group working on this. Laura Rosenberger under him, and um, uh, I, I know Laura Rosenberger. Yeah, finally, yeah. Andrew, you've been kind enough. It's eleven. It's almost midnight in uh, in Brussels, so I'm not going to keep you much longer. Uh, the book comes. The book is just out. No, it's in in the U.S. It's called No Limits. In the in Europe, the rupture. So clearly, your U.S. and European publishers aren't on the same page. Are the U.S. and Europe on the same page? And does Europe even matter here? Hmm. Um, I mean, I think on your latter question, I think the U.S. has decided that Europe matters, and China decided that Europe matters on all of this. I think basically, when you had a fairly heavily a military-centric contest between the US and China were when it was largely about military balancing, uh, Europe was much more peripheral um, in a context in which economics and technology are so much more to the fore. Um, the Europeans, have, of course, weigh much more uh, heavily in, in, in this context, which is why the Biden administration um, has channeled so much energy um, into kind of forging this um, coalition that is not just Asia, Indo-Pacific, but but that includes the European um, allies as, as as well, and and it's largely on the economic side that they're that they're looking to them, and it's largely there where having Europe on board for this wider framework on technology competition, um, I think, is also understood to. Uh, to, to matter a lot. There are differences between the two sides. They don't see the problems identically, but there's been a huge level of convergence in the analysis of, of, of the phenomenon that they're, that they're dealing with. And, and there's a lot more cooperation between the two sides on, on these things, which is why China doesn't exactly see a wholly united West on this, but um, it, it does see this emerging coalition um, uh, kind of counterbalancing coalition and not just a military one. I, I think it's understood most importantly uh, to, to cut across these, these other spheres. Well, you've calmed me down a little bit, Andrew. You seem quite reasonable, even if your message is rather chilling. Your new book out, one in both, exa exactly the same book with different titles, No Limits in the US, The Rupture in Europe, about this increasingly problematic and central question of, of US or Western relations with China in the 21st century. It is the issue, much more important in my view than, than, than Russia and the Ukraine. Congratulations, if that's the right word on the new book. Thank you so much for staying up so late. What else are you reading, Andrew? Anything that will cheer us up a bit more than this subject? Huh, well, um, I, I was actually reading Chris's book, uh, the, the the Chip War. Um, so he's that, very good, Miller, isn't he? He's been on the show. He's it's funny. I mean, he's more of an he was more of an expert on Russia. He's on the show a couple of times talking about Russia, Ukraine. Then he's come out with this Chip War. Thing. Yeah, it's a really good book. Um, uh, I mean, you have these uh, I, two these two big vulnerabilities on the Chinese side on 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 the chip um, question and semiconductor question, um, and then the other one is 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 international finance, um, where uh, Martin Trozemper's book um, uh, um, is 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 particularly interesting as as well, um, uh, which which I had just uh, started on um, the cashless. Uh, revolution, China's reinvention of money. Um, uh, uh, it's it, it's also very much worth a, um, a, a read.